Hey, folks, it's time for another episode of the High Power Archery Podcast. We have a special guest this week. His name is Richard Clark. Now, those of you who listen to my show know that I, I associate with a lot of people on the Internet because, well, I'm a coach. I get people from all over the world. I have people who listen to my podcast from a lot of different places. And sometimes we get these mutual acquaintances, if you will, who you really wouldn't know anything else about. Uh, unless you're introduced to them by other people. And this is one of these guys uh, that has his own podcast. And I got to tell you something. He started his podcast not that long ago, but his subjects cover things that everyday guys will find helpful. And it's written and produced, if you will, like we all write and produce our own stuff, from a very, very personable point of view, if you will. Um this is no sort of thing that, you know, well, it's so it's so uh, arrogant. You know, I mean, if you listen to a lot of podcasts, some of them come off as that way. And I try to be a podcast geared towards the everyday person. His really does that well. So uh, with no further ado, and without further gilding the lily, I'd like to introduce Richard Clark. Richard, why don't you, tell, why don't you say hello to everybody? Hello, Angel. It is an <laughs> absolute Pleasure to be on your podcast, and I'll tell you what, nervous doesn't even begin to cover it. I am shaking like a cracking dog. Well, there's no need to shake or or anything like that because I'm not Joe Rogan and or any of these famous people. But um, you know, it's great to have you on. I've been listening to your podcast going back uh, a little while. Um, you know, everybody helps each other out in this thing, and. I think it's good to have perspective from people from different parts of the world. Uh, everyone knows that some of the emails that I get, they come from pretty much every corner of the, of the world that there is where archery is to be found, and they're always on a lot of different subjects. And the one thing I like about your podcast is you cover a lot of different things, okay? Um, you've got this thing about a weight loss journey. You've got stuff about, you know, crossbows, all kinds of stuff like that. And I find it very, very interesting, especially since, and I'll put it out like this. Now, how many times have you been to the States? A few times, right? I haven't. I was due to do my first visit there last September oh. <laughs> on a hunt over here in the UK. I'm a massive Americanophile. Uh-huh. I think America's the greatest country on the planet. Um, I make no apologies for that. I, this country, bow hunting's illegal, and I desperately want to bow hunt. Yeah. So, one of the listeners to my podcast invited me out to his family's ranch last September. Okay. To bow hunt dogs. Creepy Joe put the kibosh on that. Uh-huh. And then, Lance, his work went through the roof. He was doing five 16-hour shifts and two eight-hour shifts a week. Wow. They were severely short staff. So that's all being put on the back burner for a while. But the, the one thing I do try and stress in my podcast is I'm no expert in anything. <laughs> the last thing I do is, is want to be people looking at me saying, fucking, I don't know, sorry, I'm going to keep it clean. And I know the, that certain lady on YouTube, Little Miss Outdoors. Oh, my goodness. Comes across as expert. I'm no expert on anything. I'm just... Joe Public trying to muddle my way through everything and find out what I can from where I can. 
Well, you, you know, the thing is when people say the word expert, that can have a lot of different meanings. And some people are self-declared experts um, who have no idea what they're doing. And the little young lady you referred to before is one of them. So um, I will tell you that, okay, how old am I now? I'm 52, okay? And I have been shooting a bow since I'm four years old. I have been hunting since I was hmm, 10, 9, something like that. And in over 40 years of hunting experience and 48 years of shooting a bow, would I consider myself an expert? To me, an expert means you know every single thing about a subject and there is nothing else to know. And you cannot truly be an expert in anything, especially things like hunting and shooting. You can be extremely proficient. You can be a knowledgeable source. But to be an expert and say that you know everything there is to know about it, I don't think is possible. And anyone who says that they do is basically full of it because you can always learn more. And I find that even when it comes to with archery stuff, and I've been coaching forever and doing, doing this thing since I was a little kid, the one thing I tell people is you have to keep your mind open to learning stuff from all kinds of different sources. I have people that just started with me um, six months before, let's just say, when I'm coaching. And I see them and I'm like, okay, fine. And you would be surprised. You pay attention to something they do. You might pick up on something that they did just because it seemed like it made sense to them. But guess what? You didn't know anything about doing something that particular way. And now I, I look at it and I'm like, hey, that's great. And I add that to my list of stuff. So now I know more. But if I just shut myself out and say, no, 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 no. I know everything and these people only just started. There's no way I can learn anything from them. Then that's a very, very bad way to go about things. And unfortunately, a lot of coaches, that happens to them. So unless you have an open mind with that sort of thing, you know, you just got to keep on learning. That's why I say the word expert means very little to me. And anyone who self-proclaims them is that, like, uh, yeah, that's a problem. Oh, yeah. I think, I think we've all come across those where it's my way or the highway types, isn't it? Oh, yeah. They, they of course, have got this certification, this qualification in their hand. Mm-hmm. They think they know everything and you have to do it their way or you're doing it wrong, and that that grinds my gears. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll tell you something. That- Anthony and Stephanie, when they do their podcast, um, they come off as people that sound like they've been doing this for 10 or 15 years. And it has to do with the way that, you know, they started, they figured out what worked for them, and the biggest part of what they do that makes them successful is they're just being themselves. They're being themselves, having a good time. And if you try to be a fake person or you try to pump up some persona that doesn't really exist, it doesn't work. So that's the way I go about it. It's if you be true about what you're doing and you're, you know, you're friendly to everybody and you're honest about what you're doing, then it just works. And it seems that your podcast, and especially since you started doing interviews and I listened to how your interviews go, you've taken it the exact same way. (laughs) So it seems to be working for you, too. Oh yeah, I mean, I I I learned I very quickly learned I, I learned a lot off of YouTube, but there's so much bull honk to sift through. Yeah, before you find the genuine stuff, and it oh yeah, YouTube it's just full of so many contradictory things. 
and you very quickly start that full honk filter very quickly drops in. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I think that today we'll cover as many subjects as you want. There's no problem with that. Um, YouTube is a sore subject with me because you've heard it on my other podcast before. Some of the things that you see on there are outright dangerous. Some of these people who are putting videos out there have no idea what they're doing. And my thing that I've seen with a lot of the videos is someone who comes along and doesn't know any better could really, really get hurt on some of the things they see on YouTube or just go in the wrong direction. Oh, there's some stupid, dangerous stuff out there on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. There are definitely very stupid things on there, you know, but that's just one of the many things we can cover. So you want your goal is to get over here to this country and, and do some bow hunting, huh? Yes. Okay. Yes. I definitely want to. I shoot a bow because I just love shooting a bow. It's such incredibly good fun. Mm-hmm. But I want to hunt with a bow as well. Well, you know, I've been to the and UK, I've been over to the UK twice, and one thing that people take for, for granted here in this country is what you mentioned uh, to me when you first got on the call was people in the UK. Uh, Hunting is not a privilege over there. It's not something that you have the right to do. Um, here in this country, it's a privilege. So as long as you go and you get your certification that you're going to be safe, um, you can buy a license, and there's public land all over the place, and you can just go out and do your thing. But in the UK, that's not the, that's not the situation, is it? Oh, no. There is no such thing as public land hunting over here. You have to have private land you can hunt on. Yeah. If you're rifle hunting, right, we, we have some really weird and some very, very strict firearms laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you own an air rifle or an air pistol with over six foot, six foot pound for an air pistol and 12 foot pound for an air rifle, it's a firearm. If wow. you get caught with that in a public place, you're doing 10 years inside. We don't have the right to bear arms. Shotguns, a little bit different. You have the assumed right to own a shotgun. The police have to prove why you shouldn't have one when you apply for a shotgun certificate. Firearm certificate, you're assumed not to need one. You have to prove why you have to have one. And like I say, you get caught, unless you're transporting it to and from an authorised venue, you get caught in public with a firearm. Even a bow, a knife, any kind of gun, and you're looking at prison time. Yeah, you know, over there, um, I guess if you have the ability to hunt, you know, it's cherished. You can go, you can do your thing because you know someone who's got private land is giving you the opportunity to do it. Over here, because we have public land and that sort of, you know, availability that's available to everyone, people take that for granted. And there is a whole thing about people over here that, you may or may not have picked up on uh, just looking at the internet stuff. And that's, okay, if you shoot a, a compound bow and you shoot a recurve bow or a traditional site type of setup, those two groups of people are usually very, very clicky. They don't get along with each other. Um, the traditional people think that you're cheating by using a compound bow. The compound people think that the traditional people are being ridiculous because they're not being accurate. Um and then you throw into the mix the people with crossbows who neither the traditional nor the compound people usually think that they belong anywhere. And the whole thing about it is, you know, 
if you bicker between yourselves, now some people don't consider crossbows archery. I don't even get involved in that argument. A crossbow is a crossbow, compound bow is a compound bow, and a, and a recurve or a traditional setup is just that. But you're all enjoying some, you're all doing something that you enjoy. Now, if that brings you together via hunting or in a competition or something like that, then you're all doing something that you like to do pretty much in the same place. But when you're beating up each other over it, what happens is the people who want to take that away from you, eventually they win because since you're all being separate little groups and have your own little clique going on, um, you don't realize when people are getting in there trying to take it away. And that happened with firearms over here. Firearms hunting is the same way, and eventually you start taking away hunting rights or firearms rights and all that. So I don't want to see that happen in the archery community at all. That's why I tell people, you know, if you shoot a crossbow or you shoot a, a traditional bow or you shoot a compound, I don't care. If you need help with it, I will help you with it. A lot of people don't know that I shoot a, a recurve at all. And only if you do know that, but I've been shooting a recurve way longer than I've been shooting a compound. Um, I've got my recurve. Do I hunt with it? I hunt with it maybe once or twice a year. I'll harvest animals with that. I'll harvest animals with my compound bow. I hunt in different situations for them because I have some places where my closest shot is 50, 60 yards and have other places where my furthest shot is 10. So I'll choose the appropriate implement for where I am. But I don't think that when it comes to these sort of things that we should be very, you know, divisive between each other. It's just like if you're enjoying the sport, you're enjoying the sport. What you're using to enjoy the sport, it's completely up to you. What do you think about that one? Oh, 100% agree with that. We do get the odd one over here that gets a little bit clicky with, with the trad boys. But if I go to a 3D shoot, I love to shoot in mixed groups. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I'm envious, really envious of the guys that can shoot trad well. I don't have that hand-eye coordination to make a good instinctive or intuitive archer. That's why I shoot compound. I need that sight <laughs> for the accuracy. And I am, I'm in awe of people that can shoot trad bows well. I mean, one of the things I want to do at the moment is be able to shoot a war bow for roves. Okay. You know, you're shooting out 180 yards with those, which just point it up and let it go. <laughs> and I want to be able to draw a 100-pound longbow to a 30-inch draw. My yeah. normal draw is 29. Mm -hmm. With these war bows, you anchor behind your ear mm -hmm. and let go. I can get an 80-pound bow up to 30 inches now. I can get a 90-pound, a gentle 90-pound bow. Because with these trad bows, they're like compounds. Like compounds, different cams make the draw easier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The bow you can make the draw harder or easier on a trad bow, as daft as it sounds. But with a fairly forgiving, I can get a, a forgiving 90-pound bow to 29 inches of draw. I can do that about three times, and then I'm spent. So a couple of the guys at the club, my, my main club, Paget, that I shoot at, mm -hmm. uh, they're teaching me to draw heavy, draw weight bows. And one of them's got a beautiful 105 pound. You guys would call it a long bow. We okay. call it a flat bow over here, American flat bow. All right. Yeah, I don't know if it's the purists listening in this country. I'll get into all kinds of trouble for that. <laughs> yeah. Same as when you say fire a bow, 
purist over here go nuts about it. I don't care. I shoot a bow, I fire a bow. I don't care about the terminology. I just, I just want to think arrows. But this, I want he's got this hillbilly bows from a bowyer in the UK named Joe Gibbs that builds incredible heavy draw weight bows. Okay. I mean, Joe's everyday bow is a 165-pound draw weight. But he's got this 105-pound hillbilly flat bow, and I want to be able to shoot that. And like everything else, it just has to do with learning how the individual style works. Um, but there's no, there's nothing, and there should never be anything prohibiting you from doing what you want to do. And a perfect example of that is, and I mentioned it on the other podcasts before, like all my girls, and I teach mostly girls, it just happens to work out that way, but all my girls that I teach, I teach them the same type of form, but just made out little differences for them. I went into that in another podcast. But if they learn the technique properly, learn how to use their back muscles and everything, they can pretty much draw any weight that they want. And I had in it, you know, I talked about an incident we had on the range where I had this big burly guy, you know, he kind of, I don't want to call him a jock, but he was one of these muscle bound fellas. And he was drawing his bow back barely after four or five draws. He was running out of breath, pulling 80 pounds. And one of my girls got annoyed, and she went. And and he's like, oh, what are you talking about? And she grabs his bow, and he's a 30-inch draw, a 29, whatever it was. And she's all of about a 24, 26-inch draw. And she pulled it back like it was nothing because she used technique to do it. And it's not like she was trying to – okay, well, that time she was trying to embarrass him to get him to understand what she was saying. But – it's it's all about if you know what you're doing, you take the time to learn it. Shooting a hundred pound bow is not going to be a problem for you. I'm pretty much convinced of that. So as long as you stay at it and you learn how to do it properly, I think you'll be able to do that with no problem at all. Anybody should be able to do that. It's just are you dedicated enough to do it? Yes, you are. Then go ahead. Then you do it. And you have no problems. But um, like everything else, if you're not willing to try, then you'll never succeed at it. And I think that that applies to a lot of the things we're doing. And if you want to come come out here and hunt, then you're going to come out and do it and put your mind to it, and you'll probably be successful at doing it. Now, hunting in the States, unless you're going somewhere that, that is on private land and you have a lot of access to, to the animals and someone who knows them, um, the chances of getting something your very first time out, sometimes they're not good, and other times, you know, they call it beginner's luck. I just call it being in the right place in the right time, I've had first-timers go out there and harvest massive animals that are trophies. I mean, trophies in anyone's book. And then I've had other people that it may take them years to do it the first time. But again, it's because they're putting themselves in the right situation and they're, or, and they're, and they're getting in there at the right time and they make the luck happen for themselves. So as long as they dedicate themselves to doing it, sometimes it'll happen right away. Sometimes it'll take a little bit, a little bit of time to complete, but it will happen. Now you want to get out here and do that, um, depending on on the person who's inviting you out there. If they're going to do that soon or not for this upcoming season, if it looks like they're not going to, then by all means, let me know. Divert your trip, and I'll take you to a couple of places out here. I have my property in upstate New York. I have a couple of different places that we go locally. I mean, I live in New York City. And what people don't realize in New York City is that we can actually have hunting opportunities less than an hour away from the city, sometimes much closer than that. 
but um, I can hunt in New Jersey, and that's 20 minutes away from me, and they have world-class deer running around there. I can hunt on Long Island, which is like a two-hour drive, and same thing over there. I can go to Pennsylvania, and western Pennsylvania, if you're lucky enough to get, get a, a tag, you might, you might run into an elk out there. So there's a lot of opportunity, wow. and if you want to do that, then you can do that. So if it doesn't work out where you're going over there, let me know. Come down, stay with me, and you'll do your thing over here. There's a lot of different ways we can get this done. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> I just, uh, I've, totally lost, I've totally lost my phone. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with drawing these heavy draw weight bows, it's a very, very different technique to compounds and Olympic recurves. It's, you do tend to draw very high, but you've got a very deep hook on the string and you use this big rolling shoulder draw. Yeah. And this thing, a couple of the guys that draw these heavy bows, during lockdown, they were shooting in the gardens, posted a couple of videos on the Archery GB page, and some of the comments they got was, I'm a coach, you're doing that all wrong, I know, and these guys that are claiming they're coaches have never drawn anything more than a 35-pound Olympic recurve. There you go. And when they're there chastising these guys shooting 145-pound bows, you're thinking just... Shut up! You're making yourself look a fool. <laughs> Please, you, 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 I, I literally sat there and I'm screaming at my phone at these comments. Asap, don't be that guy. <laughs> oh my god! You've started something with that angel. You really have. <laughs> well, you know the don't be that guy. I think that really changed my podcast the first time I put out an episode with it. Um, well, one. Most of my episodes up until that point were all, if not all of them, were all, you know, by myself. I'm doing, I'm recording the stuff and all that. And sometimes I would think of certain subjects or situations that, and you know that I keep a very clean podcast because it's really meant for, for, for the kids and the students that I have. Um, so I keep it clean. But at the same time, I see some subjects that really, really, for lack of a better word, piss me off. And... I need to put it out there in a way that it's not going to make me sound like a raving lunatic, but at the same time, lets people know, hey, this is a real thing, and this is a real problem. So when it occurred to me, like, don't be that guy who does that, you know, it resonated with a lot of people, and they seemed to really, really enjoy it. And from there is when I think my podcast really took off as far as the number of people. I think that after the first Don't Be That Guy episode i looked at the number of views and listens and stuff like that and i think it quadrupled just from that and oh, i can believe it <laughs> so you know the first time that i had anthony on and i got on their podcast actually was the first time i did it with them i think we were on that podcast for over two hours and it was actually almost three and i was just talking with them whatever and then they brought that subject up like, you know, you really go crazy on people sometimes. And I'm like, well, better that I go crazy when I'm by myself or talking to friends and stuff like that than have it really go like that in public. Now, don't get me wrong. If you mistreat one of my students or one of my girls or something like that, I will go ballistic in public. I have a reputation for that. But aside from that, I have no yeah. reason to, you know. Um I don't know what it, what it's like in the UK as far as women in archery. 
um, how they're viewed and how they're treated. Well, here in the States, it's not always good. And it's used to been archery is one of those things that I found was like an old boys club. Like, well, why is a girl doing this? Or why is a woman doing this now? And some guys didn't take well to that. And I covered that in depth in a couple of don't be that guy things that I did. And it's just a fact of life, something I have to deal with when I'm coaching. Because we go to public ranges, and there are guys there who don't believe that girls should be hunting at all. I hate to tell you, some of my girls that that I've trained, I'm talking about 12, 13, 14-year-olds, have killed bigger deer in their first year or two than some of these guys have ever seen, let alone had an opportunity to shoot. Because the one thing that they do... They dedicate their time to what they're doing. They learn and they listen. And then they're humble about doing the whole thing. Whereas some guys will just storm, you know, storm into the woods saying, that's it. I'm going in there. I'm doing this. And guess what? Nothing happens. So <clears throat> I don't know what it's like over there for, for, for young ladies and women in archery. But over here, it's not always the easiest time. So I'm kind of... I don't know. I, if anyone ever had a problem with, with, with someone because of that and they write to me about it, I deal with it and I take care of it. You know, it's one of those things that I hate to see that sort of thing. I don't like to see anybody left out or singled out for any reason at all. And I tell that to people when it comes to learning this. Right. You know, um, I can honestly say I don't think. I've ever seen any sexism. That's good. In, I, I shoot called NFAST, National Field Archery Society, mm-hmm. with three deers. We don't do indoor. We don't do spots. And archery is the most fantastic leveler. Yep. Especially with modern bows. It's not about the poundage you draw. It's how hard you work and how accurate you are. An archer, we've had, I honestly can't see why they shoot men's and women's classes separately now. Of course, you go onto an NFAS course and you'll see a lot of the women putting in much higher scores than the men. <laughs> and I think it's fantastic. There is no place for sexism in archery. Nope. Well, there's no place for sexism, full stop. But in archery, why? It's a fantastic, fantastic leveler. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of my girls outshoot um, boys in their, in their same age groups by 20 or 30 points. I mean, it just has to do with the dedication. Sorry, I've lost your audio, Angel. Yeah, can you hear me now? You got me oh, back? Oh, yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, um, I'll get you back. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the girls in, in my uh, that I teach outshoot boys in their same age groups by 30 or 40 points. You know, it's just one of those things that they do. Um, so, to me, it makes no difference if it's a boy or a girl who's shooting Archery, like you said, is the is the leveler. It brings everybody together and levels a playing field so everybody can do it. I I think with wrongly or rightly, maybe this is a sexist view. I don't think women have that machismo and ego that a lot of blokes bring into it either. Like yeah. you said, they're a lot more humble. They're more dedicated, and that shows when they shoot. There's none of this macho bullshit, none of this ego there. <laughs> they just work hard and shoot like absolute demons. Exactly. So so at least you don't have those problems. At least you don't have those problems there in, in the UK. 
At least it doesn't appear that you have them anyway. But it's something that we deal with over here. So um, as far as what we're talking about in today's podcast, anything that you want to go over, just go ahead and shoot. I know that when you email me, you're like, well, there's a couple things I want to talk about. Whatever you want, just go ahead. It's on you now. You tell me what you want to hear about, and we'll go right through it. Right. Levels in coaching, you're, am I right, thinking you're a level four USA archery coach? I'm a level three, okay. and Level three. Yeah, level three. So here's where the differences come in. So level one and two are basically, with USA archery anyway, they're instructor level, meaning you're taught safety, you're taught how to teach someone to shoot archery without hurting someone, without hurting themselves. And there's a lot to that yeah. because safety on the line, learning the whistle system, learning how to whistle, um, control all that, that's very important. Now, when you hit level three, now you have to learn physiology. You have to learn actually how to coach someone, um, how to get them to, to do things uniformly. And the, the, it's a couple of days of training, like eight-hour days of training before you can get your certificate. Plus, there's mental management. Um how to look for abuse, signs of abuse, that sort of thing. Safe sport training is something they take very seriously here in the States. Um, you have to get recertified every year or every two years. I forget what it is. But they also do background investigations. Now they do it for everybody. But they do background investigations and all that. But what? And then level four is another thing where you go for like a week, week training. It's basically the same thing, but it's more about learning how to present and stuff like that. I've spoken to crowds of 1,300, 2,000 people. I don't need to learn how to present. I want to get the level four certification, um, but the classes are very few and far between and basically involves me taking a whole week off of of work in order to go do that. I may still do it. Um, I was all set to do it before COVID hit and all of a sudden they wiped out the classes. So I may still do it. But as I've said before, a certification is only a piece of paper. And... yeah. It does not necessarily mean, because someone's a level three, a level four, a level five, anything like that. The only difference between a level five, a level five is somebody who's had a certain number of um, students that made the podiums and national events or something like that. And once you hit a certain number of those, then they grant you a level five. And, you know, there are a few level fives around, and they're great for what they do. But again, like I was saying, to me, a certification is just a piece of paper. To a parent, a certification is a good thing to see because that means that whoever is going to be working with your kids has taken the time to go and do a certain amount of paperwork and has gotten a background check to say, okay, they took the time to do this. We did a background check, and from what we can see, I'll stress what we can see, they're not an axe murderer or psychopath, so you're fairly safe. Now, does that mean go and drop your kids off with these people? They're good to go. First of all, archery is not a, not a daycare thing. We don't do that. I have my, the parents that are, of the kids I teach there all the time. So, just like I said, just because you got that piece of paper, you still have to do diligence to say, okay, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to see how they're working. If it's for your kids, you're going to see how they're working. But, again, like I always say, don't take a number or a certification or something like that to mean the person knows what they're doing. If you see, and I hate to say this, I've seen very high-level coaches, 
That's why they call you a coach when you hit level three and up. I've seen very high-level coaches who don't have the first clue how to deal with a student. And as I discussed in a podcast, two podcasts ago or something like that, there's a rigid system that they teach, and there are people who teach that system but don't know how actually how to shoot a bow on their own using that system, let alone how to tailor it to somebody. So if you see things like that, those are red flags. That means, again, pointing at what I said, it's just a piece of paper. Use your best judgment. You'll know if someone's trying to work with you or someone's just spitting stuff out. That If they regurgitate um, information, that's not good because if they don't know what to do with it or don't know how to use it, then it's meaningless. And that's, that's where I come down on certifications and that sort of thing. That's how that works. So USA Archery here, you have everything from the one to the five. One and two are instructors. Uh, three through five are, are coaches. Level three, and, level three is more common. I mean, in New York, there's not a terrible amount of them or find ones that are actually active. Level four, there's a few here and there because, again, it takes more time to go do that. And level five is like very, very few. So that's how it breaks down with the levels and coaches over here. Yeah, see, I, that, I think that's the same as our Archery, Geo, Archery GB over here, which is the same as your USA Archery. They're the yes. National Arms of World Archery, aren't they? Yep, they the are. society, the IC, ten fast. Yep. We only have one level of coaching, and they are it, like your, your level one and two. Yep. Basically, teach people the very basics, how to be safe, and when a coach with NFAS signs someone off there, basically saying they're safe to go out and shoot at other people's course grounds. Now, I'm thinking of doing my coaching course. It's called a coaching course to me. It's more an instructor. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of doing that, but I wanted to ask you, I, I, I worry because I don't shoot trad. I've got a trad bow. I might shoot it once a year. I shoot compound. I've always loved compound. But I worry, would I be a good, would I be a good coach? That's the biggest fear for me. I've seen coaches that, like I say there, your episodes, last couple of episodes, you must have mind read me (laughs) because they answered questions and discussions I've been having with friends and you have them. Then we'll put pop a new episode for me in it. Oh my God. Angel must have been mind reading. <laughs> what makes do you think? I, I've never taught anything in my life, so this will be my first attempt at going for something where I'm responsible for instructing other people. And I find it really, really nerve wracking the thought of doing that. I mean, is that going to teach me, keep me on my toes and make me work harder at it? But uh, it, it's probably an impossible question to answer, and I'm sorry if I'm being oh, no, awkward. And, and, and here, You're right. What yeah. makes a good coach? Okay. So I can answer that pretty simply because you'd think it's a very, very complicated question. It's not. Only if you look at it like this. So there are people who are level threes and fours here. I'll just use the USA Archery level example. Who specialize in teaching compound, specialize in teaching Olympic recurve. Um, Some intermingle the two. And I'll tell you, what makes a good coach? 
it has nothing to do with your particular ability to teach one thing or the other. What it has to do is, if you know the basics of how to shoot, okay? Now, there are some things that are unique to Olympic recurve or to trad that are different from compound. But the the mechanism, as far as using your back to draw and all that, are the same. So, as long as you know your basics for it, okay, there is no reason why you cannot coach someone in any of the disciplines. What will make you a good coach, and this is the part that I stress the most, and people somehow, I say people, and I don't mean my students, I mean other coaches don't get it. And I have a problem with is that when you're coaching someone, okay, what differs from a great coach and a poor coach, whatever, is not how many people you're able to put on a podium. It has nothing to do with that. It's very simple. If you walk into a department store, I, this is the way I'll, I'll, I'll just compare it. If you walk into a department store, yeah. you're going to buy something off the rack, a shirt off the rack or something like that. So you're basically going to get what you're going to get. They're not going to tailor it to fit you or anything like that. If you walk in to some very famous bespoke place or some haberdashery, you're going to get something custom tailored to you. Okay? Yeah. So what uh, average coach is, that's the department store. What a great coach is, that's you're a bespoke job or had a haberdashery there. I, I compare it to the Kingsman movie. You know, they have that shop where they did everything oh, yeah. for them. That's what being a good coach is about. Where it comes down to it in archery is a regular coach is going to say, here, do this, do this, do this, bye. But I don't get this. Well, you have to do it this way. A great coach, and I'm not saying I'm a great coach. I'm saying that I strive to be a better coach than the average. I strive to be the best coach possible towards my students. What a great coach is going to do is you have to look at what your student is doing. And no matter what's going on, you help them through it. If they can't do something on a draw or something's hurting them, you figure out a way to help. You don't say, this is the cookie cutter system that we use. Take it or leave it. What you tell them is, okay, this is not working for you. Let's work together to find something that does. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to being a good coach or a great coach, if what this thing is going on when someone is learning from you, if it becomes, and this is where I draw the line, if it becomes work or something that they don't, there's one thing to be hard work. That everyone has to put in if they want to succeed in anything in life. I don't care what it is. But when it comes to learning archery, they work, they do their discipline, fine. But at the end of the day, if they're not enjoying what they're doing, then you have failed as a coach. Now, that can mean you can be just keeping it interesting. I deal with a lot of kids. I have to keep it interesting for them. So changing the targets, doing whatever. Not, oh, you're doing this wrong and yelling at them. I see too much of that. And that really, really angers me. You don't want to yell at them. You want to help them. You want to get them to progress to a point where everything works. And as long as you're able to do that, then 
you are either on the path to becoming a better coach, a good coach, and even a great coach. And you'll see that the people who are better coaches out there, their students actually like them. The people who are the bad coaches, the students can't wait for the session to be over. So some students that are brought to them are like, the parents bring him in, no, he's got to do this, whatever. And it becomes like a chore to them. It becomes something they don't want to do, something they dread. The only thing I can say about all the students I've ever taught, they never dreaded their lessons. Because when I see that a student doesn't want to be there and I can't make it so that they're happy being there, the one thing I'll ask them is, do you really want to do this? And I'm not going to say I haven't had a student tell me, no, I never wanted to do this to begin with. Like, okay. Then you know how I make that better? I say, do you want to shoot for competition? Do you not want to shoot this? Sometimes they just want to shoot for fun. I break out the 3D targets. They've never been happier. But they're still learning how to do what they got to do. They just don't want the stress of having to compete for competitions. And other kids like, no, I don't like, I don't like archery at all, I've heard. Like, fine. I go and I talk to the parents. I'm like, is he here for you or is he here for himself? Because he doesn't want to be here or she doesn't want to be here. And I can't force someone to like something, no matter what. I can try my best to do everything. Like, maybe I'll find something they like and I won't give up on somebody. But when deep down from the heart a student tells me, look, I just don't like this sort of thing. It's not my thing. I don't believe in forcing them to be there. So again, sometimes not coaching someone is part of being the better coach that you can be just by telling the parents they don't want to be here. I'm not going to coach someone who doesn't want to be here. I've tried everything to make it entertaining for them. They don't want to do it. I would be doing a disservice to that, to that young boy, young girl, or even adult by saying it's not for them. So that's the way you have to look at it. If you are the one who's going to customize everything for them, who are going to dedicate the time for them, then no matter what your skill level is, you're on the path to becoming a better coach than the average Joe out there who's just doing something by the book and doesn't really care about it. I'm not going to say that the guys who just teach one discipline or another don't care, but I'm going to say that your students will know the difference between someone who's, they'll call you a great coach because they're actually learning something that they want to do. And that, and you're making it so that it works for them. So just be that custom tailor for them. Whatever they need, do it. Make something work. And sometimes it may take 10 tries, whatever it is. Sometimes they may not get something you try to tell them, like how to hold or how to draw, how, how to release cleanly. You don't give up and you don't yell. All you, take, you tell them is, okay, let's work together to find something. That's what makes the difference between a good coach and a, and a great coach and I think if you go into it th- with that mindset, you should have nothing to worry about. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, I think there's a lot of people out there that will consider you one of the best coaches around you. I remember one of your episodes, uh, one of your students was talking to a guy on the range. He said something, and yeah, that's my coach. He's a badass mofo. <laughs> you said, whoa, whoa, you can't use language like that. Sorry, coach. He's a bad mofo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She she was 12 at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, I I, I, I I get a little bit of that. Um, and 
Now, like I said, I teach most of my students, and right now there's 41 or something like that that I teach on and off or that I see regularly. Um, wow. I think out of the 41, 38 of girls. Um, so one thing that, that I try to stress on them, and some guys don't like it, is self-confidence. I'm teaching them to be self-sufficient. Yeah. I'm teaching them to do everything. Now, Anthony, when I first started talking to him, he says, you're one of the weird people out there because you teach kids and your students how to work on their bows instead of just try, trying to teach them how to, how to shoot their bows. And I look at it as that's a part of coaching that some people don't do. Um, the way I was taught is you have to be able to service your own equipment because if not, you become so dependent on either a shop or someone else to do the work for you that you can't progress. So they always taught me to do everything myself. Well, I don't see any difference in teaching the kids I teach to do everything themselves. I teach them properly, and I'll start with little things like how to serve in a peep. And once they've been with me for a couple of months, believe it or not, some of these kids already know how to put a bow on a bro press, how to take off the cables, slap on a new set of new set of strings, do all that, how to tune it, time it. Why? Because it goes beyond shooting. I'll have them in my, because my shop is based out of my house and I have a 13, 14 yard range in the house um, along with my whole shop. And when I have kids down there or adults, I'm like, hey, so you see how we're doing this? Or if, or if something comes up while they're shooting, which is normally how it starts, oh, the peep is turning. All right, I'm going to fix it on the press. In a normal situation, they give it to the guy in the pro shop. The guy takes it in the back, works on it, brings it back out. Hopefully it works. It's all good. I'm like, no. Okay, so come. Take a look at this. This is how we're going to do this. And I show them how it works. And before you know it, they're like, well, I think I can do that. Like, sure. Here's a bow that I got laying around. Try it. See how it works. And then they learn how to work on their own equipment. And they become better people like that. So my girls are all trained to work on their bows. Um, students that I have, adult students, to a, to a certain degree because they have not as much time, they still learn how to do things on their own. And it just works out better that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you ever, if you ever watch the Elkstrad YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, there's a shop of Washington, Spokane Valley Archery. Yes. And Dan Statton did a podcast with Josh Jones, MFJJ, uh-huh. that I watched yesterday. Yeah. And he said a lot of shop owners are against people working on their own bows because he thinks it's less work for them. But he said, actually, if they live two hours away from a pro shop, they get a problem, they can fix it themselves. They enjoy archery more. They bring more people into archery. Exactly. And when you've provided them good service, you're the natural call. So instead of reducing business to him, and he said there's always the odd one that will blow up the bow on the press and have to come back <laughs> to him anyway. <laughs> But they bring more people into archery, enjoy it more, buy more, and it's more business for the shop. But it does make perfect sense to teach people the proper way to work on their own equipment. Yeah, exactly. A lot of shops are afraid they're going to lose business over that. Um, and, you know, if you are if you do bad business in the first place, yeah, you might lose business because someone's learning how to do stuff on their own. But at the same time, if they need to buy something, they're going to come to you to buy it. Maybe they pay a little bit more for it, but at least they know that they can go back to a place with something to return it or for help with it if something goes wrong. If I out here, the, the thing is to order everything from Amazon. 
So if you order from Amazon, is there anyone for you to talk to when something's not working? No, there isn't. Amazon doesn't like it. They tell you to send it back if they have a return policy for it. So at least with a shop, yeah. you know, if you're doing your own thing, you're going to go back to the shop. You can converse with them. Hey, you might see something else you like. You buy it over there. It all has to do with how that works. Now, that was one thing I was going to ask you. In the U.K., How is it? what's it like over there for availability-wise with shops? Are there shops around? Because in New York City, a city of millions of people, there are only one, two, three, three shops in New York City proper um, and one on the outskirts, so make it four, that five maybe that are here, aside from my place where very few people know to come to me or whatever, but retail shops that are out yep. there with signs and all that, there's only five of them. But still, for millions of people, they only can travel 5, 10, 20 minutes, and they're there. In most parts of the country, in the Northeast anyway, you can travel to a shop within an hour of you. But there are parts in, in other parts of the country where the nearest shop is four or five hours away. I was wondering if that's the same kind of deal that you have over there in the U.K. I, I think with distances in the state, it's, it's down to the sheer size of the country, isn't it? Yeah. Over here, we've probably got about 20, maybe, I think, 20-odd archery shops in the country. Okay. My closest one, I won't touch with a barge pole unless I'm desperate. Mm-hmm. There, it's all about the money and not about the service. Okay. I, I went to work there for a while. I needed a job, but I'd love to work in archery. They were hiring yeah. And at my interview, said, why do you want to work here? I said, because I was trained in customer service, and your customer service is frankly abominable. <laughs> oh, wow. And they, they like, their jaws hit the floor. <laughs> I stuck it nine months before I had to walk out. Uh, I, I spent four hours setting a, guy, setting a guy up with a bow one day. He spent nearly £2,000, and I was told, why did you spend that long with him? That was far too long with him. You should have had him in and out in half an hour. You know what? F you. If somebody's spending that much money, I I want to give him the time and make his feel make him feel like he's had a good customer service. So he's so he'll come back again. The one I go to now is about twenty five mile away from me. Uh, the Archer's Nest. Ryan is amazing. In fact, his daughter has had a massive achievement this year. His daughter's Penny Healy. She won the World Indoor Series in Vegas at 16 years old this year and placed third in the ladies' recurve at Vegas. That's awesome. Ryan's an awesome shot, and he knows what he's doing with the bow. You see, there you go. And it it has to do with what you put into it. Now, here, um, I will tell you, most of my work that I do, and and I've changed the way I'm doing work lately because of health issues and you name it, but... Most of the work that I take. I'm in, losing your audio again. Okay. Angel. So, so you got me now? Can you hear me now? Got me now? Yep. I'll okay. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Zoom. What can I tell you? Um, so, like, I've changed the way I do work over here, but most of the work I get coming in, I dedicate most of my working time to my students and helping them out and doing stuff like that. Um, I don't do as many retail jobs as you will. I'm a PSE dealer, and COVID really killed us as far as being able to sell bows and get people coming in, whatever. But. Yeah. But the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I saw was, you know, I get people who mail me bows from around the country. They call me up like, "Hey, can you work on it?" Sometimes I can't. Sometimes I can't. But most of my business that I do is not selling stuff. It's mostly working on them. So the way I look at it is, a good shop will have repeat business. Maybe they won't sell as many bows as they want, 
But the repeat business comes from being providing good service to somebody so that they bring their friends back to you. Maybe once in a while they'll buy a bow or something like that. But if you're if you're coming to you and you're doing great work on their stuff that they already have, you're not pushing things, you know, like, oh, you have to buy this, you have to buy that. Me, I'm the worst salesman in the world in the world. Unless you actually need it, I won't I won't tell you that you need it. I'll be like, all right, so what else do you want? You want to do this? You want to do this? Whatever. Fine. But I don't push anything in on anyone. Here in the States, we have big box stores that sell bows also. The problem is, for the most part, when you go over there, you might run into somebody who's got all of about 15 minutes selling archery stuff because that's the only training they gave them. So they may sell you something that's not right or whatever, but that's what happens, and people get bad experiences from that. And honestly, I can't blame the... 19-year-old kid who's working in the store who got taught how to do this because yesterday he was working in clothing and today he's working in the archery section and he doesn't know what he's doing. He's not doing anything out of malice, but it just doesn't go right sometimes. And sometimes that's the experience you'll have with people. But uh, yeah, I was just curious, you know, how, how the shops are over there, but it doesn't seem like it's too much different from over here. There are, there are other places where it's much worse though. Yeah, I mean, our biggest problem is availability stuff. Yeah. A few years ago, I bought a PSE Bow Madness Epics. I'd looked at PSE, Prime, uh, Matthews and Hoyt, and I found all the shops to see, because they, they all advertise in stock. Yeah. And I found one down south and said, right, advertising these in stock. I want to come and shoot and so I'm looking at buying a new boat. She said, oh, well, we haven't actually got them in stock. If you <laughs> want to try them, you have to pay for both. Buy one of them and we'll refund you the one you don't want. I said, but these are only two of the four I want to buy. That's insane. And she said, oh no, you've definitely got to, you must buy one of these. And it's a nightmare to try and actually get, especially flagship bows, to try out. Yeah. Nobody carries them. They all order them in from the majority ordering from Europe's two biggest wholesalers. We've actually got a couple of PSE dealers in the UK. One of them is a place I won't touch with a barge pole. The other one's about a four-hour drive from me. Uh, two official Matthews dealers. They're listed as official dealers on the website. One of them doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And the other one is, again, about a six-hour round trip for me. But a lot of the bows aren't kept in stock. You have mm-hmm. to buy them. You have to buy before you try. And that, that's an awful way of buying bows. And this is one thing, you look at the state and all the videos, the bow reviews coming out of the state say, try before you buy. Yeah. You can only do that if somebody's got one you can actually try. Exactly. And they tell you you've got to buy both and they'll refund you the one. You know, I'd say long and hard for this bow. I couldn't afford to buy two flagship bows. Exactly. And then that creates the other problem where you don't know if you're being sold a false bill of goods. Where, you know, you'll ask me, well, what do you think about the cam cam cycle on that before I go ahead and buy this thing? And they'll say, they might say, oh, it's great. It's wonderful. Whatever you get and you wind up hating it because it's not something that you wanted. Here, I tend to keep, you know, of the more popular bows, I'll keep one or two in stock of each of them. And if someone wants to buy the one I got hanging up, fine. They can buy the one I got hanging up. A lot of times people are trying my own personal bow, you know, because it's about the cam style and all that. Like here, try mine. Whatever, fine. If you want something, however, that I don't stock, then what I'll tell you is go to one of the big box stores who may stock it or something like that and try it over there. And then if you want me to order it for you, well, I can order it for you. You can buy it over there. I don't push anybody to get it directly from me. 
uh, all the time, which seems counterproductive. But the fact is I would rather have somebody try something. If they want to get it from me, I'll get it from them, no problem. Or if they want to buy it somewhere else, fine, you can buy it somewhere else, no problem. But I don't want them to have a bad experience with it. And unfortunately, that happens to a lot more people than you know. And with the price of bows today, because you're dealing with bows that now have escalated up to 1600 U.S., 1300 U.S., and if it's a carbon, 2000 U.S., then that's a problem when you don't know what you're getting and you don't have a chance to buy it. And hearing that from you where you got to buy two of them and return the one you don't like, that's insane. See, I, I've made a very good career out of making very poor career choices, which is why <laughs> I earn a shitty wage. So it takes me a long time to save the things. Yeah. And I can't afford to make mistakes by I was fortunate when I bought Macuba. Merlin had got one in stock, and I went and shot it. Now, the place I used to work, you were allowed three test shots on a bow, and that was it. Wow. After three test shots, they considered it secondhand. They wouldn't have one that was purely a demo model. So I went into Merlin. They got this out for me, set it up. I tried it. I put half a dozen shots through, and I said, I think that's the one. And Dan that served me said, hang on a minute. You can't make your mind up in six shots. He said, have another half an hour in the range and make sure you're really comfortable with it. That's what's needed. Mm -hmm. That level of service, and it's too hit and miss in this country. Yeah. Wow. That... You know, that, that's what a lot of people don't get over here. I mean, if, if you can't try it, don't buy it. That's what I tell people. If you, And if that means that you have to go somewhere else because I don't have it, so be it. But I don't want someone, tr- you know, not having the opportunity to try something and winding up hating a sale because of it. I'm I'm not into that sort of thing. There are some guys who are, but I'm not. A lot of guys over here, the, the thing that, and there's a couple of shops. You're right. People, a lot of people aren't. They, they, there's a lot of people over here, a lot of shops that live on the – one time, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, see you. I don't care if I ever see you again. You know, they don't live on repeat business. So if they piss someone off because they do a poor piss-poor job for them, they don't care about it. And I hate to see that, but it's more common than you might think. Um, you know, where where Anthony is Saluda River, they have a reputation for not being like that. Those guys are, you know, they do everything to try to help you, and that's probably the way it should be everywhere. Unfortunately, it's just not. Yeah, guys at the archery shack are like that. I mean, when 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 I was a complete doofus and dry fired Mikuma, I know it takes so long to get bear parts over here. So I emailed the Jeremy at the archery shack and said, "Right, how long does it normally take to get parts?" He said, "Oh, two to three weeks." This was at the start of COVID, so in the end, it took a lot longer. But I. I email, I ship my boat to the States to have it repaired rather than take it to a UK shop because of the length of time it takes to get parts here. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, the service from the guys at the Archery Shack is absolutely amazing. Oh, that's, that's something I wanted to ask you. Yeah, what's that? Brandy with shops. I love Archery Shack strings. Yeah. There are a couple of other string makers in the States I want to try because, as horrible as it sounds, they're in a string maker I trust in the UK. They, they don't warranty the strings like the American firms do. Okay. I mean, when I had my first separate artery shack six months in, I got a little bit of serving separation around the bottom, the module on the bottom cam. Okay. So apparently, these H18 cams, the hybrid cams fitted on the Kuma, are super aggressive on the module. 
Yeah. A bit like the old Matthews, and they promote serving separation. Mm-hmm. Sent a photo to the guys at the archery shack and said, is this dangerous? He said, no, it's not, but we'll send you a new cable under warranty. I said, well, at least let me pay for shipping. He said, no, sir, we've got you covered. And 10 days later, I've got a new cable. I There's a couple of other company strings I wanted to try, but he, I've had such awesome service from Jeremy and TJ. It made me feel really disloyal to them. And I, that, that kind of churns with me. I, I, I'm a firm believer in loyalty. But then one of the other string companies I wanted to try, they've now been picked up by Obsession to do all the string and cable sets for Obsession bows. Mm-hmm. They're a mom and pop store, and I love supporting small independents rather than big corporations. Yeah. In your opinion, if a little mom and pop business gets to do, get picked up by a massive, by a big firm like Obsession with the thousands of bows they'll produce, do you think it may affect the, the quality that Joe Public gets? the lead times and are they going to be able to work to the same high standards that people have got to look? Well, I I will say this. It's not 100% guaranteed, but when that sort of thing happens, the lead time is definitely going to get affected by it. I can tell you that right now. Although they may try to stay good with the lead time, it may not. It may suffer because of it. And the other thing that may happen is quality control may go down. So you have to be careful with that. Now, if you, it's just try it, and if you see that you're not seeing any difference in quality, fine. But I've seen that happen with a lot of companies before, where they just got too big, and all of a sudden the lead time turned from a week to four weeks, whatever it is. Um, or they got so big that they expanded into some gigantic warehouse, and now they've got 80 employees, where before it was just like two or three or even a one guy doing it. That becomes a problem. Most, yeah, that becomes a problem most of the time, but not always. That I've seen happen in strings. I've seen that happen with broadhead manufacturers. And with broadhead manufacturers, you know what happens to them? You'll have a guy who's working in a shop, and he's got a design that's working for him, and he's grinding everything himself. And all of a sudden, that design gets picked up by a big company who buys it from him, and they start they start outsourcing it to to China or something like that, or to some mass production factory has zero care about quality control or anything like that, and it winds up suffering in, you know, the customers wind up suffering because of it. Now, eventually that problem takes care of itself because they lose all their customers. Um, everything is yeah. like, that, like that. But I would say if you think that the, the mom and pop company is a good, has a good product now, and now all of a sudden they've, turn their operation from maybe 100 to 200 string sets a week to 5,000 string sets a week or something like that, there's nothing wrong with still giving them a try, but be cautious because more times than not, you're going to get a loss of quality in it. And the only one who's going to pay for the loss of quality is you. So guys like the Archery Shack, it's a relatively small operation, and they have great customer service. That's what you you may pay a little bit more for what you're getting from them. In some cases, believe it or not, you're paying more from these you know mega gigantic string companies than you are from what you're getting from Jeremy. But 
I was going to say Jeffrey was actually cheaper than a lot of the others. Yeah. And he's worked fantastic. I have had zero peep rotation in 12 months. Then... So, well, after 50 shots shooting in, I think I got a 16th of a turn, and there's been zero movement since. Yeah. So I would say if the old adage goes, if it's not broken, don't fix it. If you're happy with he, what he's given you, stick with what he's given you, and don't necessarily go exploring elsewhere unless you have a problem with what he's doing for you. But I don't think you'll ever be able to match that customer service on there. That's where I come down on these things. I mean, I make strings myself when I have to. The problem I tell people is I have another string manufacturer that I work with. It's a relatively small company, but he does everything, and I've never had an issue with him. And I know for a fact that his quality control is good. Um, and he makes all my sets that I use. I can make sets in a pinch myself, but for me to make sets regularly, like if I maybe I'll do two or three string sets a week, for me to make those string sets would take me so many hours to make them to the standard to which I hold. It's just not productive for me at all because I maintain a full-time job. So what I tell people is, you know, go with what you see works. That's why I don't do them myself anymore. Like I may make a set for one of my kids or something like that if – Something is, is wrong, and I can't get something there for them right away. But that's pretty much it. Um, so, yeah, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Just leave it alone. If you're happy with Jeremy's strings, keep them. Looks like I'm ordering a new set from Jeremy. <laughs> I've got to ask you, how do you balance everything you do? If you listen to the podcast, it's like, the otter is a full-time job for you, but then you also hold down a full-time job and you're doing the YouTubing as well. Yeah. How, do, how do you strike the balance? Well, you know, a couple of months ago, I pretty much, I it was a couple of months I pretty much said, you know, I can't continue to do this on the level at which I'm used to. And I thought that I would be doing a disservice if I kept doing it and I didn't give people the same amount as was going on, and that was because of a lot of different reasons. One was primarily because of a health problem, and that's still ongoing today. But it was also work, a bad divorce I was going through and all that. So I hung it up, and then because people got me going again, I started back up again. But in answer to your question, how do I juggle it all? I can tell you it's not easy. I can also tell you that coaching is not my full-time job. My full-time job, I'm an engineer in IT, okay, working on things, all kinds of stuff. It's an 8-hour to 10-hour day job that I work. And that that's five to six days a week, depending on what I've got going on. But with all that, I still manage to make time for the students. I do everything that I can possibly do. Now, sometimes it means I don't sleep more than two or three hours in a night. But... The one thing I learned from the person who taught me, and we can discuss that another time offline because I'm not going to get onto it on here. Uh, actually, I'll mention it to you after the after we've done recording. But anyway, um, the one thing he taught me was you have to be able to give back. So I dedicate as much to my students as anything else. Number one priority is not being making sales in the archery stuff or anything like that or even making money in coaching because I make very little money doing that and – there are a lot of kids I coach who can't afford the equipment they're using, let alone coaching. So I do it for free. Um, I've actually had some kids where they couldn't afford equipment. I buy used equipment here and there. And 
kids who come to me want to learn, they teach, they're learning with equipment that I've got them, you know, that they're using our in-house equipment. If they stick with it long enough, I'll get them their own set. But you have to have your priorities in what you're doing. Number one is to, to my family, you know, however you want to look at that these days because yeah. the middle of divorce and all that. But number one is to my family and then my students who are my second family, if you want to look at it like that. And, of course, my, my job. And it's all got to work for you. You got to learn how to tether it a little bit. Does it mean that seven days a week you're pretty much jammed up? Yeah, unfortunately it does. But everyone can put into this as much as they're able to do. It's when you're putting too much or something like that that everything else suffers for it. So you got to learn just how to gauge it. That's all. Yeah, I mean, I, I was heartbroken when you said you were hanging it up, of course. I remember the first time I listened to your podcast. Anthony and Stephanie have been raving about it, and I'll listen to it. And please don't take this the wrong way, but the first minute you hear your voice, you think you're listening to a Hollywood New York mafioso. <laughs> you've just got that, you've got that confidence in your voice, and very quickly you come across as this guy that has always put in whatever you get out of archery. You always put so much more in. And when you, I gotta admit, um, I was almost tearing up when in one of them when you were on about how if kids can't afford it, you don't charge them. You, you'll sort kit out for them. I thought this is one of this guy is an absolute asset to archery. Archery needs more. Angel Garcia. I, I appreciate that. You know, it's it's. Um, I don't know when when I see kids who can't afford it. Whether it's kids or adults, it doesn't make a difference to me. Uh, the way that my coach brought me up in doing this, and I'll tell you about him later, uh, I was taught a certain way. And money is secondary to it. You do what you can yeah. with what you got. And I have to sacrifice a lot of different things sometimes, but if I make it work, I make it work, and that's all that really matters to me. And some people don't understand it. My ex, My soon-to-be ex-wife was one of them who didn't. Um, but in the end, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of money and I don't value having a lot of money because you're taking advantage of other people. It's just not what I do. But if I can help people yeah. so much, then I do what I can. You know, these days with everything that's going on, I don't have as much time as I'd like. Um, but there's the, the value of having something like zoom where students who I can't see because I can't get out there or they can't get to me. Well, that doesn't mean that their coaching ends. I put them on a Zoom session and I, I'm watching them work in their basement at home and stuff like that. And I can still reach out. So when something gets, you know, COVID was the worst thing in the world because it pretty much stopped everything. But a week after we were locked down from COVID, I was still coaching. How? I was doing it through Zoom. So if, yeah. if it starts raining lemons, learn how to make lemonade. Do something like that. You know, you, you, you work with what you got. But, yeah, I, I put as much into it as possible. Sometimes it's a little bit too much. But, um, you know, even hanging it up for those couple of months that I did, uh, I was in a very, very bad place. But the kids and someone very close to me made me come back into it. And 
it it seemed like oh, I, I was so glad when the podcast reappeared. So <laughs> glad. It, it seemed that I I had a lot more people to think about, you know, than I even realized because I think once I made the announcement, I put it on Facebook and 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 I emailed a couple of people, whatever. I think within the first week or two, I get a lot of emails. Don't get me wrong, but I must have gotten like seven or eight hundred emails from people saying, "Wow, hey, how's it going?" or whatever. I'm like. You know, it makes you think, and it makes you see things a little differently. But that was in the past, and now we're back to doing what we're doing. And I will tell people that I will continue to do this as long as I got breath in my lungs, and I'll keep doing it. Um, the biggest thing is to be able to pass it on to other people so they can take over for you. And that's what I think I do with my students. Yeah, I mean, it's like your legacy is all your students and hopefully, like I say, we, we live in a society that's very instant gratification, very money-driven. Yeah. Hopefully your, your students, and if I start coaching, I'll be able to instill it as well, do it for the love of it, the passion of it, and just enjoy shooting bows. You know, hopefully your students are going to move forward with that, with your attitude, and they'll have the same kind of passion and, if we can all put in a little more than we get out, how do we grow archery? Yeah. And, and how do we grow it as a sport? You know, that that's the whole thing. If if people are not willing to put into it more, they, I look at it like this. Do not look at it from what you can get out of it. Because if you're looking at it from that, you're, you're not going to... If you look at it from that, you usually get back less than you put into it. But that's just the way things are. But if you can help just one person put a smile on one kid's face, then it's all worth it, you know? And um, I forget, I was watching a movie the other day uh, called The Greatest Showman. It's about P.T. Barnum. And one of the things he says in the movie, it's a very great line. I, I don't know exactly the words were, but he says, the greatest, you know, trick or ability you have is the ability to put a smile on somebody's face. And if you can do that, then you are successful. Well, that's the way I look at it teaching archery. If I can have people enjoy it, then they'll and make a kid smile from it, then they'll pass it on to somebody else. That's all I want. That's actually what I, I have certain personal goals I like to achieve every day that I generally don't talk about. And one of them is to make one person smile every day. You don't know what people are going through. If you can make a person smile once for one day, that might be the highlight of their day. Yeah, it, it usually is. I mean, some of the kids that, I t- that I've taught in the past, they're only released from the tortures of their life that they were in. Some of them were in very bad situations. Well, when they came down to shoot with me. And... You know, I hated to see them go away, you know, at the end of the day. But if I could give them a little joy in part of their life, that's all I wanted. That's why sometimes I was coaching seven days a week. You know, I'd get home from, like, I start my work at 5 a.m. And I'm done around 3.30 sometimes. At 3.45, I was out on the outdoor field, and sometimes I didn't come home until 8 or 9. You know, and then it was to work on bows that I had in the shop. And people like, well, why do you keep on doing this for like, because if I don't do it, there may not be anybody else who's going to. So somebody has to do it. And as long as yeah. you, as long as you 
are enjoying what you're doing. That's all that matters. And that goes to being a good coach. So if you, if you really want to coach and you really want to spread archery, then that's probably one of the best ways. But like I said, the certification stuff like that is just a piece of paper. You can coach people yeah. who you know at the club and stuff like that. Show them what you know. Work with them. You know, and as long as they're willing to learn, no piece of paper is going to ever take that away from you. So, or give you anything extra on there. But if you want to get it out to more people, the paper sometimes helps. I'd just like to be able to show people the passion I have for archery, how I enjoy it, how it makes me happy. Yep. And if I can share that with other people, to me, that, that's half the job. And, you know, there's a lot of different things that archery wraps around with physical fitness and stuff like that. I know you've got your own weight loss thing that you're doing. And um, during my time off, because I wasn't able to move around much at all, I think I gained like another 43, 44 pounds. And now one of the first videos I'm putting on YouTube, and that's been a nightmare putting videos together. Um, when it finally gets posted on there, one of them is going to be like, hey, I'm back to doing what I'm doing. Keep an eye on me because you're going to see my weight go from here to here because I have the ability just from discipline and stuff like that. I can lose 30 to 40 pounds in like a month to a month and a half. It's not not terribly hard. Wow, that's um, impressive. But, so that's going to be on there. So if that helps to inspire people, it helps to inspire people too. You know, um, And you've done a great job of that on your side and you're very, very open on stuff that like you're doing like that. And, you know, I think it all helps. It may not be on the archery subject, but guess what? Someone who's coming to you looking for archery advice may need that sort of thing. So it branches out. And I think you've done a really great job with that. I mean, nobody's ever said, I'm in too good a shape to shoot a bow, have they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That I know. <laughs> So, anything else you want right, to get covered got, on here? <laughs> right. Sorry, I'm dragging on. I don't know. I've got a couple of questions specifically sure. about bow setup. Okay. When it comes to broadhead tuning, yeah. tune the arrow to the bow or the bow to the arrow. Of course, there's a million different answers on YouTube. When it comes to broadhead tuning, okay, or arrow tuning in general, because a well tuned arrow will fly with a broadhead or a field point doesn't make a difference what it is. A poorly yeah. tuned arrow may fly with a field point well and fly completely cockeyed with, with a broadhead. Um, it's a matter of tune the arrow to the bow. So yeah. you can do different things to the arrow. You can shorten it. You can put point weight on it. It's a formula. You've got to find the right formula for a bow that works for that for that arrow. So you take the arrow and you customize it to do whatever you want. A lot of people, you know, just keeping it short, we can do another technical podcast another time, but just um, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, well, I had this bow last year. I got a new bow. I'm just going to move the arrows over and expect them to work. That's not always true. There's differences in the cam, the cam aggressiveness. There's differences in the brace height and all that. So generally what I tell people is, if you can't afford to buy new arrows or something like that and you want to make your arrows work, then you may have to make modifications to those arrows. That's why you tune the arrow to the bow to make it work. And you can add point weight. You can subtract things. You can do a lot of different things. But 
in the end, at the end of the day, it's always important to make that thing work perfectly with that with that bow. Sometimes it may not be possible depending on what you're going from. But the general rule of thumb is tune the arrow to the bow for me. Yeah, I mean, I've got to work on grip pressure at the moment because before I start bear shafting through paper, I've switched grips on the bow and I don't think the consistency is good enough yet with that new grip. Okay. I'd, I'd be... Grip press is going to throw random shots left, right, and centre through the paper. And the other one is peak heights with a slider sight. I used an Axel Accutouch Carbon Pro. Okay. Uh, at our club, our longest shot's 40 yards. I've got my peak set with the sight at 20 yards, and it's good out to the 40. Going other places and shooting longer distances. Where would you set the peak height? And you always focus the peak on the scope. I use a Bowman nose button, or jewels keep the nose button in the same place. Okay, th- this is what I do. So the nose button comes into it last, if you're going to do that with the nose button. The first thing you got to do is, what is the median distance you're going to be shooting? So if my max distance that I plan to shoot at all is just, say, 70 yards, then I'll set it for maybe 40, 45 as where, where my comfortable peep height is. And the way I do it is I just keep moving my 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 sight i take the peep out i move the sight down until i hit 40 yards with a with a decent anchor okay now yeah just being aware that you have to move the peep up for the longer distance shots so you're going to anchor lower on your face now yeah doing that i'll find that my median is 40 yards say for a 70 yard max and i'll be like okay fine 40 45 yards i'm looking through so that when i open my eyes and look through the peep I'm exactly looking at my 40-yard target, and I can hit it without moving my scope or anything like that. If you're shooting much closer distances, then you want to set it for a much lower peep height for that. Um, For example, if you're only shooting indoors, you want the peep height lower. Why? Because if you set for a 70-yard peep peep height, it's going to get a little uncomfortable trying to aim at a 20-yard target. So you'll have to, like, crunch your head and and do that sort of thing. there's one guy out in the UK who's got a couple of videos on how to do it. His name's Alistair uh, Whittingham. He's a really he's a coach, really nice guy. I met him uh, at a couple of Lancaster tournaments. If you if you see how he does it, he kind of has you like tilt your head in. That's probably the only thing that I don't really go for. What I go for is I rather have your head straight and raise the peep up. You know, raise the peep, bring it down, just raise your anchor point up so that it's comfortable for you to shoot. But you want to set it for what's the middle distance of what you're going to be doing. That's why there's a big difference between indoor setups and outdoor setups. So you just want to keep it around there. Just keep in mind that if you set something for 20 as like your regular regular distance and you try to shoot 50, it's going to get weird when you try to anchor. You got to literally try to twist that anchor around your face to make it work. That's why we try to go the middle distance of whatever we're going to be shooting. Yeah, I've just joined EFA, which is our equivalent of your NFA 8. Okay. And targets on an EFA course range from 12 feet to 85 yards. <laughs> then you may want to consider two peeps. <laughs> I've seen that before. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking going back down to boat and bow hunting with a five-pin sight. <laughs> well, believe it or not, I've got people who, bow, who want to shoot traditional, um, but they can't get the whole idea of like sighting with the arrow or instinctive shooting and they actually put a sight on their bow multi-pin sight 
and that'll help you learn how to do it. So never be afraid to try something, no matter how weird it sounds. So if you're comfortable shooting with a multi-pin, shoot a multi-pin and bow hunter or something like that. If you're comfortable shooting I a scope. I multi-pin from end of 2014 to last year when I switched to a single pin. Uh-huh. And some people and have always shot really well with <laughs> Some people have a problem adjusting or picking the wrong pin. That's the only thing I've ever seen with multi-pin. But single pin can be an adjustment oh. for people. Yeah, a few times I'd, I'd, I'd look, go for a 30-yard target and use a 40 or 50-yard pin, and that's embarrassing when you go over a target with a compound. Well, the one thing I will tell people, like if you're hunting, use a multi-pin sight, only because with a single pin... I find people forget to set the distance they're going to be shooting. So if you know that you're shooting 12 yards or 15 yards at animals, fine. But if you're the type of guy who's going to go out in the plains hunting or on a, like I've got places where I hunt where my average shot is going to be between 60 and 70 yards. Now I can make a 60 or 70 yard shot. I don't suggest it for other people unless you practice that double that and you're good at it. Um, but there's people who try to make a 40-yard shot and they completely go under the animal because they forgot to move their dial to 40 yards. Or better yet, they were yeah. they were shooting 40 yards the day before the animal comes in at 15, they forgot to move their dial back to 15. So that's why a slider sight like that is not always great unless you're really used to using it. But then you have the best of both worlds where you can have a slider sight with three pins in it or four pins in it. And then I was going to say, I yeah. thought about that, actually. Yeah, and, and like, I, I use a black gold, and that's why I use it for because I have three pins in there, and then after that, the third pin's the floater that goes up and down. But since I normally, where I, where I hunt with the compound, my furthest distance is, like, 50 yards, that's no problem. I never have to move it. But if I have an animal come out at 90, and I know I'm confident I can take the shot at it, which I don't suggest for all people, but if there's no wind and the animal's calm and I know for a fact I can plunk that every day because I'm used to shooting 120 yards, then sure, I'll move it down and I can take the shot if it's ethical and effective. Again, it just gives me extra ability that unless you practice with, you shouldn't be doing anyway. But yeah, that's what I like them for. Yeah, so I think my, my first bow hunt, I've nearly beat myself to 20, 25 yards because it'll be my first time drawing up on an animal. Well, if it, if it if it come if you come out with me, I'll, I'll get you within five yards of an animal. So that's not a problem. Uh, they get really close, and the only thing that you got to remember is, if you're hunting things like white-tailed deer, they're magicians. They appear out of nowhere. So if you can learn, they to, really as well. What's that? They they seem like they can jump a string like nothing else a white-tail can, can't they? That's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> I'll explain to you why <laughs> off the call, but um, I have my feelings about that, and I make them well known off air. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, no, there's different ways to to hunt them, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of the shows that you see on TV now, uh, when you, you see these guys, they're hunting out of tree stands. I don't know if you realized it, but most of them are all gut shots. And they're like, oh, I took them down right away. They don't show you the part where they're looking for that animal for like six, seven hours. Um, So what you see on TV isn't necessarily how it happens in real life. But, uh, yeah, no, that's definitely a subject for another podcast or off air. But, yeah, the jumping the string thing, yeah, I I can get into that heavily. (laughs) That's not a problem. (laughs) 
Right, I've got to ask you, are you going to do a Don't Be That Guy? Uh, today on here, well, you know, I wasn't thinking about being a Don't Be That Guy, since this is mainly like a two-way interview thing. However, <laughs> however, um, so... I'm smiling from here to here now. <laughs> since you brought it up, Okay. Now, sometimes it don't be that guys. They have different sources of inspiration, if you will. And we'll we'll end the podcast with the don't be that guy for today. And as I said, we can do as many yeah. podcasts as you want later on. We've been on this thing for an hour and a half, so not a big deal. But since you mentioned it, yeah, why not? Um, so this episode, <laughs> this episode's don't be that guy goes out to all those arrogant asshats. I had to say it for the one time. <laughs> those arrogant asshats yes, you did. of shops out there, okay, who think that nobody should learn to work on their own stuff because everyone besides themselves is completely incompetent. Well, guess what? Don't be that guy who does that. You know why? Because the great majority of you people who say that are incompetent yourselves, okay? You may not want someone else going somewhere and doing it on their own, buying their own bow press and all that, because you don't like them doing that. You think you're going to lose business? Well, guess what? If you're losing business, it's not because people are buying their own stuff. It's because you suck. You suck at what you're doing, and you're trying to compensate by saying, hey, you shouldn't be working on your own stuff. You're not qualified to do that. Well, guess what? If people didn't learn how to work on their own stuff, no one would ever get anywhere in this world. You can't rely on someone to do everything for you. That's called being addicted to something, being helpless. You have to learn how to do your own things. Not everybody has to go out there and buy a $600 bow press. But guess what? Most of the stuff that you can do on your bow, you can do without all the fancy equipment. A little bit of ingenuity, a little bit of research, a little bit of taking the time to learn how to do this on your own works wonders for everyone. It makes them better people. So these guys, these asshats who say, you've got no right to go out there and work on your own stuff because you don't know anything and I'm going to lose business because of it, stuff it. I don't care. Those are the guys who give us a bad reputation. Anyone who comes to me in my shop and wants to learn how to do something like that, I'll, I'll teach them. Like, here, this is how it works. If you think you can do it on your own, great. You want to take a lesson on how to do it? No problem. But if you're going to be completely abrasive to people and say, you shouldn't be doing this because you're not me, well, then that just plain sucks. And they can do whatever they want because guess what? They can say that as much as they want, but in a few months to a year or two, whatever, giving bad customer service and treating people like that, you know what's going to happen? They're going to close their doors, and then you won't have to listen to somebody like that anymore. <sighs> Rant is over. Feel better about that one? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is the best one. I had a friend whose bow blew up, and when he took it back to the shop, they said, oh, it's blown up because it was press strong. Guess where the only place that ever pressed it was? <laughs> there you go. This place he it from. Yeah. And... When he picked it up, I said, oh, what could have happened is because you're running your limbs wound in, they're not designed to be run wound in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. 
So, you, you know. There are some very special people out there, Angel. Oh, I know it. And believe me, I've seen all kinds of weird things come into the shop. And I'm like, for real? Who did this? And if you do something wrong or if you don't know how to do something, just tell me. Don't let me investigate and find out you did it on your own. I see some weird stuff, okay? I've seen some really, really weird and, yeah, I don't know, people who misinterpreted a manual and they said, oh, yeah, just give it four limb bowl turns out. That's the max it can go, and you're fine. And they did that on the top one but not the bottom one. And the limb bolt's about to strip out on the top and the bow is shooting funny. I'm like, uh, you do realize they meant to loosen both of them? Uh <laughs> Didn't ever said anything like that anywhere. I'm like, uh, okay. Now you don't heckle them. I may laugh. I may have to step out into a closet or something like that and just laugh hysterically. But I'm not going to make fun of them. But I'll laugh hysterically yeah. to myself. Come back and then realize my job is now to help them and to explain to them why this did not work. I could laugh them out of town. Yeah, educate them. Constructive criticism, like. Maybe you should read the entire manual, and if you have a question, call the company or ask me. You know, but at the same time, I don't go like, well, this happened because you're an obvious idiot. No, that doesn't get anywhere. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you can get a lot of that sometimes. But just blanket telling somebody, no, it should only be done in a shop, that doesn't work, and that's not true. But, uh, yeah, so you got your episode of Don't Be That Guy there. How do you like that? <laughs> you were witness to it one live. <laughs> it has been such a pleasure talking to you, Angel. You are, one, like I say, Archer needs so many more Angel Garcias. Well, what I'll tell you is um, this will not be the last time that we're on here. Matter of fact, if you want to make this a regular thing, we do one together once a month, whatever you want. That's fine. I will oh, always find awesome. the time to do that. Um, and... When I when I end this part over here, do not hang up because then I'll just end the recording. We'll talk about a couple of things afterwards anyway. Um, so that'll do it for this episode of the High Power Archery Podcast. Now, why don't you tell them where they can find you um, and what to look for to, and how they can contact you if they got any kind of questions. Right. The podcast is Archery Geek Outdoors. You can find it on all usual podcast sites. Podbean, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, uh, Amazon Podcasts, Audible, all the usuals, you can find it on there. I don't run a Facebook page for Archery Geek Outdoors yet. It will start. I will start one at some point. Twitter at A underscore G underscore Outdoors. Instagram, Archery Geek Outdoors. And you can email me on archerygeekoutdoors at gmail.com. All right. Great. season. So now they can find you. So I think that you're going to have a lot more people from the States listening to you now because now you've probably piqued their curiosity if they've never heard of you before. Well, hmm, that sounds like something I might want to listen to on the way into work. That They'll hit you up that Some way. So, so, so then, uh, they can, they can hear you on, on there. And of course we're going to have you back on here and I like to make it a regular thing or something like that. Um, and that'll do that. So like I said, stay on in the meantime, folks, that'll do it for the episode. Um, we hope you had a good time listening to this. It'll be the first of many that we're going to have more guests on. If you have any questions, be sure to email us at highpowerarchery at gmail.com. Visit our website, leave a message, highpowerarchery.com. Um, 
And like I always say, it's never goodbye until until we see you again. Until then, stay safe and shoot straight. And uh, that's all, folks. 